Welcome to Useful Outsiders, a monthly podcast series brought to you by the Council for International Development. So this episode was a conversation that happened during our conference last year. Our former director at the Council for International Development, Josie Pagani, spoke with Duncan Green, Senior Strategic Advisor at Oxfam GB, and Jennifer Kalpaka-Stone, Director of Strategy and Programs at Balance of Power, Vanuatu. We thought this was an important discussion to include as part of the Useful Outsiders series, as it speaks directly to the theme. It looks at how COVID has shifted a more localised approach to aid and development. They discuss how we can make the most of this moment and lessons learned to really embed locally-led processes. We hope you enjoy it. So clearly COVID has increased need. We've seen devastating images uh, in the last 18 months or so, but it's also accelerated some positive changes, one of which is locally owned development because the borders are closed. So we can't do the fly in, fly out mode Mm. mode of aid. Duncan, I'm just quoting you here. How do we take the sparks of change from COVID and light a fire that changes the way that aid works long after COVID? So I'm asking you to answer your own question. Wow. Um, okay. So you get these moments when something good happens uh, by accident, right? So we're, we're in such a moment in terms of localization and COVID. Um, and what is easy to do is just assume that that is great and that we'll never go back and you know, isn't it wonderful and celebrate it. You need to be a bit more uh, analytical than that. You know, once things return to normal, if they ever do, um, power will reassert itself. You know, there will be funders and recipients in the same way. So I think one thing is to use this moment to shift some of the structures, some of the incentive systems some of the ways that projects are funded so that it doesn't go back. If you don't do that, it's very likely the power will reassert itself and we will mm. go back to how things were. So I think mm. looking at things like, who do you fund, right? I mean, one of the things that's emerged from COVID is that a lot of the people responding are not traditional, or not traditional, are not the, the kind of CSOs that are normally funded by the aid system. It's faith mm. groups, it's self-help groups, it's secret societies. It depends on the country, but lots of different groups. So the aid system has to start seeing those as potential partners, not just focus on formally constituted CSOs, which tend to be very easily controlled by the power system in the, in the aid world. I could go on, but I'll stop there. Yeah, Jen, Jen, how have you found it in the Pacific in terms of which local organisations have endured and, and coped the best in terms of responding to COVID? In other words, is it the ones that were already... Um, locally led in other words some of Duncan's examples of Mm. um, organic and authentically led local Mm. initiatives which which Mm. organizations have managed to adapt the best? I think Duncan's right I mean I think where um, you know local organizations are you know um, naturally pop up or where where they developed themselves locally I think that's you know they've already got their roots grounded and they're they're solid you know and I think that's that's definitely where you've seen you've seen them flourish you've seen them um, continue to take on you know uh, in the absence of fly in fly out but this is definitely I think the new reality in the Pacific I mean you know, in the vacuum, in the absence of something that's always been there, something else will always come in and fill it. And, and that's what we've seen. It's a new, new opportunities have been ushered in because of this. And, you know, 
I think it's important to also recognize that many countries over the years have already experienced, let's take, for example, a humanitarian response. Many, many countries have done this for years. Um, take, for instance, Tropical Cyclone Pam in Vanuatu in 2015, where an enormous influx of foreign aid came in with it's an enormous influx of you know, technical advisors and people that came in to help. Now, there's always going to be transfer of skills, of knowledge, of you know, um, those technical expertise. Yes, whilst many of them were fly in, fly out, did leave elements of, of good practice and things like that with the government. Now, governments, what they do is then they'll adapt those things and they'll take things that are you know, naturally more, I guess, useful to that country's context and adapt it to make it their own. And so when we had a situation where because of COVID, we had yet another tropical cyclone category five hit Vanuatu, the systems had already been established. The systems were already in place. Um, people knew how to react. And this is not to take away from the fact that for centuries, <laughs> Before this, you know, Pacific Islanders have been, um, you know, have been managing their own recovery well before, you know, the current age that we're in, for instance. So I think, yes, that there's, there's truth in, in that established local NGOs or local institutions or organizations, perhaps not the, the, the ones that aid uh, development partners may have partnered with previously, are the ones that are now you know, more established and able to do this work. But, you know, at the same time, you know, credit has to be given where credit is due. And I think governments themselves are, play an enormous role in, in um, ensuring the continuity of that and the sustainability of any kind of response that comes. It's, it's kind of like we're talking about shifting from not just project to program, but actually program to process. And, and yeah. what you're describing, Jen, and what you work in in terms of the Balance of Power project, which is about, you know, not just getting women into positions of power in the Pacific, mm. but getting people to vote for women who stand yeah. for positions of power. So you're, you're changing social norms. So, and, and we um, know this in our own political environments in our own countries, but we don't yeah. apply the same lens sometimes to development. So how do you, I mean, and has COVID helped to get funders and donors to think about funding processes of social change rather than even just programs let alone projects yes and no um you know we're in we're in a a strange time and you know it's taken it's taken a few months of course it's taken you know over a year for a change to happen and then a shifting before it settles into whatever that new normal might look like and in that time, what you find is that many times um, funders will continue to try and hold on to what they feel is familiar and what they can con almost control. Um, and so I guess one of the biggest, um, probably one of the, the biggest things or the biggest challenges that we face as a program that is, is doing social norm change is that there isn't a, t a tangible thing that you can kind of um, document or count or quantify <laughs> as you know oh social norm change happened there um, because it takes you know it takes a, a long period of time to track and it takes incremental shifts and changes you know um, incrementally where you, you you'd have to take a stand maybe five years or ten years from now to look at those incremental changes and 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 
count them as a one consolidated sum. There is an, definitely an appetite for it, though, because I think one of the things that we continuously tell ourselves is it's a demonstration. It's by demonstration is how you, you show that it can be successful. And that's difficult. And it's difficult when you're under the pressure of having to perform as a, a locally led initiative. Um, and it means that, you know, we need to continue to be advocating for, for that process on platforms like this one and others. Um, I'm not sure if I've answered your question at yeah, all. Yeah, well, Josie, I think but. that's really interesting because there's a, a danger, isn't there, Duncan, of, of um, everybody agrees localization needs to happen. It's the question of whether or not we're doing actually the same old thing by remote control. So mm -hmm. when you talk about, uh, you know, using other partners in the Pacific that may be genuinely local rather than ones mm -hmm. that have been created in order to fit to a particular criteria. I mean, hopefully you would hope that COVID has demonstrated that some of the organizations you mentioned, Duncan, that on the ground that have responded to COVID effectively are not necessarily the ones that either we as aid agencies or donors might traditionally have partnered with. Yeah, I mean, I read a book a while back called How Change Happens, but often what I find myself talking about is we why know. change doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> what, often what I find myself talking about is why change doesn't happen, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important issue in the aid sector. And for me, it's one useful way is to think about, is it ideas, institutions, or interests which are blocking things changing? And I think on this issue, it's all three. So I think ideas, people have deeply rooted ideas about what is a good thing to fund and a good thing to fund is something with a concrete outcome, which is semi-predictable, which can be measured and reported against, because everyone's yeah. terrified of getting into trouble with their donors, their yeah. politicians, whoever is funding the aid system. So you've got a real ideas issue that you have to shift to the idea yeah. that it's okay to fund processes, but that requires an institutional, a lot of institutional innovation, because let's be honest, there are lots of really rubbish processes out there. I work in an NGO. I know I could spend my whole life in meetings which achieve absolutely nothing, which are processes. So you need a rigorous way to measure what are good processes and what are rubbish processes and okay. to distinguish between the two. And we're not there. You know, everybody can say, well, we've changed the agenda. We've changed the narrative. You know, how do you prove that one way or the other? So the Processes are just a bit more, at the moment, a bit more flimsy and hard yeah. to pin down than mm. we've distributed a load of blankets. So mm. uh, until you get some element of rigor in the measurement, yeah. there's going to be a lot of spin doctors saying, fund my process, and by the way, there are no outcomes at all. Um, yeah. So I think that is a really important question. Then on the institutions, so that's the ideas bit, but also institutions need to innovate. And then interests, you need to uh, accept that, you know, if you're a a boss of an NGO, of a funder or an NGO, you know, localization means less money coming through. If you're an international NGO, less money coming yep. through you. So we have to change yep. the interest structure so that that seems a good thing, not a bad thing. Um, so there's a bunch of changes which which require analysis, not just being a good person, um, yep. and require politics and seizing moments like the one we've got to flip ideas, interests, and institutions so that we don't go back. But it's not yep. a given at all. Yeah. That, yeah. So how does the NGO sector uh, frame itself as what's been called the useful outsider? In other words, what 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 does the what does the NGO what does the future INGO look like in yeah. that scenario if we get that right? 
yeah, I'm not I'm not liking what the opposite of a useful outsider is, but let's not go there. Um, uh, so I think there are, yeah, there are, NGOs are not a monolith, they're a system, right? And inside an NGO, there are people who love this stuff and want to do it. They're yeah. often the people who are experienced in programs or, or, the, or sometimes the CEOs and sort of um, certain people. There are other people who just, this makes their life much harder. The fundraisers... Yeah the male people, yeah, the, the, the people who measure stuff. And so there'll always be tensions within INGOs over this kind of thing. Let's not pretend that everybody thinks the same. They really don't. Uh, press, yeah, media. This stuff is much harder to sell to the, to, to the, to the northern press uh, or the international press, and therefore the media side don't like it. So it depends on the balance of forces within the INGOs. Um, mm. And to be honest, you know, let's flip this. So if, if power follows money, then our most important ally in doing this is probably the donors. Right? Yeah. If the donors say jump, most INGOs will say how high, right? Yeah. So if the donors say localize, we'll say suddenly we've discovered that we're really keen on localization. Yeah. So, so you know, if the donors say we want to see you hit this target of localization, or we're going to cut your core funding, um, then I think that will make things shift. So yeah, I, I emphat force the INGOs to be good people, please. Good. Yeah. What do you think, Jen? If I could just pick up on that point as well, I definitely, I absolutely agree. And I think just to take that a step further, recognise the imbalance in that power structure. So imbalance being that recognise the level of influence and the level of authority that I guess donor agencies have, um, just like uh, Duncan just said there. Um, recognise also that, yeah, absolutely, there are losses. What are those losses and how do you, what are the kinds of conversations we need to be having to make people less uncomfortable about those losses? And some of those losses are hard. They're difficult to, to address because a lot of them are on very personal, uh, on a very personal level. I wonder whether, you know, if perhaps I'm jumping a little bit ahead here, but, you know, Duncan, I think you talked about some of the kind of measures that we could um, implement or some suggestions for implementing to kind of hold um, people to account. And I, I just think one of the things that doesn't seem to be coming out very clearly is that you know there is an opportunity when countries you know often when there's bilateral partners like MPAT and say the government of Pacific Island Nation uh, when they're in talks um, talking about you know, partnership agreements and in development for instance you know those are real real opportunities to make lasting commitments because those those agreements hold both countries accountable to what they've agreed to do and if one of those things is that actually it's it has to be a requirement that this development project or development program that's going to be implemented in this country has to have you know as a co-lead or you know important instrumental positions in that program need to be led by local um, you know those are very real kind of practical um, things that we can start, you know, suggest for implementation. I mean, again, MFAT is on this call. And so, you know, one practical solution, I guess. Um, I'm sure Duncan has many, many more. Great idea, Jen. Um, but, you know, promises are easy. Um, you know, mm. the thing I feel with localization is like St. Augustine, who once said, you know, dear Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Right? And localization <laughs> feels a bit the same. Yes. <laughs> so, so, yes. so how do we get past the St. Augustine problem? Um, mm. Maybe one thing that MFAC could convene or, you know, make happen is a nice league table. I'm a big believer in league yeah. table. So <laughs> a league table where every year 
all it's all it the people it gives money to have to report against a set of metrics which measure their degree of localization so that the one at the top gets kudos the one at the bottom gets shame everybody tries to compete and you know, race to the top and you do it every couple of years so you can see whether there's been real progress and then people have got something to shout about you know and then that'll shift the incentives to doing the good stuff because you want to be at the top of the table we use it with companies we use it with governments we never use it with ourselves maybe we should and top so of the table, you yeah. mean like dollar value, don't you, Duncan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I, when I was at the OECD, we did a project to see what was the most effective way of influencing government policy. And it turned out it was simply the league tables. You know, where did you sit in terms of educational outcomes? Uh, where did you sit in terms of an aid peer review? Uh, so I think what you're both saying, actually, is that shifting the model of aid to something that is far more locally led, that's far more based on process and, and, and social change or social norms changing is not, is not a, um, a, 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 a sort of degrading of the need for evidence and data and rigor. And, and I hear this a lot with our um, Pacific partners all the time. Don't patronize us and think that we don't have to have some form of accountability just like anybody else for spending the money. Um, yeah. But just listen to us about how we can be accountable and don't impose a different way of a different framing of doing it. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you, you, you I mean, you said in the beginning, Duncan, it's really hard to find the right way of measuring a process. Mm. I mean, what, <laughs> got any more insights into how we might do that other than just saying we've changed the narrative? <laughs> Um, yeah, so this is getting into Mel, and that's like for clever people. I, I do not understand this stuff, but you know, I surf uh, on these discussions, and there are lots of really good tools for measuring processes. Mm. Yeah, there's a thing called process tracing, where you say, well, it might have been what we did, but it might have been a bunch of other things. Let's just weight them by talking to people and get a reasonable idea of how how much attribution we can actually claim for you know tackling climate change or whatever it was. You know, so there's there's that there's bunch of other weird things outcome mapping you know there um and i don't really understand any of them but they i'm sure they're very good everybody speaks very highly of them but mm. Jen, i don't know if you've actually done this i just talk about it but you know but it's probably also it's probably also accepting and having the appetite to wait because it you know process change can only be measured over a long period of time we're talking a change that might something one intervention that you make today that you won't be able to see its outcome until 15 years from now but you know as I said before we still need to be you know I'm I'm speaking from where I'm working at the moment we still need to be answering to our masters so we do still need to be tracking all of those little incremental shifts that lead up to that big change in 15 years time but you still need to be demonstrating your effectiveness every day because we still need to get funding to continue the long battle you know Um, so I think it really is, I don't know how to do it, but, you know, accept that social norm change takes a long time and you need to be willing to wait for it to eventuate, I guess. Tell that to a what? donor. <laughs> I think there's a, well, a couple of things on that. I mean, actually, the, I've looked at a few programs which have done this in really interesting ways. And some of the things you can do, first of all, you have to get everyone to accept that the word rigorous and the word qualitative can appear in the same sentence. Right, because yeah, <laughs> rigor is not synonymous with numbers, however bogus. Right, so that's a really important kind of mental shift that we have to get. Yeah, and that's True. why all this process tracing and stuff is really important because it it shows that you can do this well or you can do it badly. 
right? So, so I think that's one thing. Um, the other thing is just, yeah, one of the things I looked at the Coalitions for Change program in the Philippines, and one of the things that they do, which DFAT, the, the Aussies loved, is that they shut down stuff. And then they make a big fuss about shutting down stuff, which isn't working. And they explain why they've shut it down. And that enables the donors to say, look, this isn't just a blank check. This isn't just a do whatever yeah. you like, guys. Um, they've actually got a way of detecting early on whether something's going well or badly. And then they do something about it. So mm. if you shut down stuff, don't hide it. Make a big fuss about shutting mm. down stuff. Okay. Don't love it. Right? So, so there's the basic <laughs> things you can do to make it look mm. like you actually know what you're doing. You know, there's this phrase adaptive management, uh, which people talk about a lot. For me, a big challenge is proving the difference between adaptive management and really bad management because bad management looks astonishingly like adaptive management <laughs> at first glance. And you've really got to show that they're different things, right? Yeah. What, what, what role does the, potentially would laws play? So we know in the UK having a law that required 0.7% mm. of aid actually, you know, delivered 0.7 of aid until recently. Mm. Uh, is that is that to me? Well, the, yeah. I mean, on the call. <laughs> yeah, as the Brit on the call, and as the one who has has talked about the uh, power of laws for 0.7. Yeah, Duncan, this one's for you. <laughs> so yeah, it's quite Jen, It's really mixed, you know. I mean, um, so on the face of it, insisting on the quantity of aid is a pretty dumb thing to do, right? Because that means that as long as they're spending 0.7, it doesn't matter what they spend it on. Um, but then when what we've seen since they got rid of 0.7 is it's not as if they when they cut aid, they cut the bad stuff. They actually cut a lot of the good stuff. And it's been a complete nightmare what's happened with the British aid program since 0.7 was abandoned and we went to 0.5 um, because they just cut whatever they can cut. There's been a kind of bonfire going on in the new mm. department. Um, and they did cut the bad stuff, but they didn't have enough bad stuff, according to them. I think we just that maybe debatable. But according to them, they didn't have enough bad stuff. So then they just started slashing everything. Um, so I think, I think, uh, I'd say there are much cleverer laws than 0.7. You know, they, there's transparency laws and reporting laws and all sorts of other kinds of laws, which maybe move more towards the quality end rather than the quantity. But the quantity is not a bad thing to have because it defends defends you during hard times. It defends the aid programme when people are coming for it. Um, mm. And we've seen what happens when those laws are abandoned. So I think on balance, I'm a fan of 0.7, but then I would be, wouldn't I? Um, um, but uh, uh, we've seen what happens when those things go. And I think, you know, um, yeah, let's not get into was aid. Okay, carry on. Jen, <laughs> would, you, would you advocate for a law, say, for donors to have a you know, to honour their, their commitments for a certain percentage of aid to go to local organisations directly? That would, it's difficult because, I mean, if I can speak from a Pacific Islander perspective, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to get a, a, a government try to pass a law that holds another country to account for money that they're giving, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, it, it has to be from the donor country rather than, the recipient country which is why you know which is why that that suggestion of well maybe your bargaining power is when you're at the table discussing what those development agreements look like on a on a government to government level you know i've seen um you know previously how the australian government has been able to come up with a set of um you know mutually accountable measures that they hold you know the governments hold each other to now 
how effective or how rigorously they can implement those or hold each other to account, that remains to be seen. But I guess that's a step towards trying to say, well, you know, if you want to implement a, a program or a project in this country, you have to at least have, you know, X percent of the staff be local or, you know, a significant portion of those that are in a, a position of decision making and driving, um, you know, driving or leading that program need to be um, nationals of that country, for instance. Yes, yeah, so a, con a contractual obligation rather than law. Almost, Sorry, yeah. Duncan. Yeah. Yeah, but, but I, I totally hear that, Jen, but, but the first, yeah, I'm just thinking what would this mean in practice? The first thing that any sensible INGO is going to do is try and game it, right? So they're going to set up a, you know, Oxfam Vanuatu with some Vanuatu staff because there's that, because they, yeah, so laws are very blunt instruments. They're very easy to do yes. work around in games. So I think I'm not, I'm not a massive fan on legislation, I must say, on this kind mm. of thing. I think it's more about the norms and the practices and transparency True. and getting some upward competition between players yeah. and that kind of thing. Like the league table. Yeah, yeah, that, that's what we really care about. Where do we sit in the league table in the OECD as donors? Um, I, I was quite shocked in a way to read about, there's a wonderful process in PNG called the Voices Inc., which I'm, I'm sure you're aware of, Jen. Uh, so it's, it is a process. It's a, it's a youth-led movement about um, getting young people into leadership roles and influencing policy and so on. Fantastic uh, um, uh, movement, really. They said, and I'm quoting one of their leaders, that they find it much easier to work with ExxonMobil, uh, the oil company up in the highlands of PNG, uh, easy, quote, easier to work with than the aid agencies because the corporate partners have much less demanding reporting requirements than NGOs or aid donors, and they're much easier to work with. And I read that and I thought, that's pretty damning. So what can we learn from that, Duncan? Hold on. I think, Jen, you go first. <laughs> I, yeah, if we're talking about the Pacific, I'm really not going first. <laughs> yes, it, it's, it's more of a general question about what is it that a company like ExxonMobil is doing in the way that they work with local communities mm -hmm. that in some cases we're not doing. I would, I mean, with I'm not from Papua New Guinea, nor do I claim to understand the internal politics or the dynamics of how the country operates or the relationship between you know multinational companies like ExxonMobil but I would think that a, a, um, a private company a private business uh, a profit-making company has different incentives for why they do things the way they do than a government which probably has more social responsibility I'm not saying that um, multinational companies don't have social responsibility I'm saying that what incentivizes people to act a certain way is, is quite different. Um, and that's probably all I can say about that. <laughs> Without, what do you think? Yeah. yeah, I mean, what do you think, Duncan? I, I, I okay, guess sorry, it's challenging. Sorry to drop your hint, Jen. It's a bit of a nasty question, I know, but I found it really challenging. <laughs> yes. well, I'm just thinking in terms of, <laughs> in terms of power. Um, and accountability. Multinationals are actually not that accountable. They kind of they got the power, right? So they can do good stuff. If you're a donor, you're paranoid about what they, they're going to say in Parliament, what they're going to say in the Treasury or the Finance Ministry. So you're much more down on what's going on in PNG or I guess or anywhere else 
because you don't have as much power as a multinational which says, here's some money for CSR, we don't really care what you yeah. do with it, it'll look fine. And then you can actually do good stuff. So paradoxically, democracy is actually a problem <laughs> in this particular situation because it's upward democracy, upward accountability to a bunch of people who do not live in PNG and who have a completely different set of incentives and fears. Mm. Um, so I'm just, yeah, that's a really general point, but I think that's, it's quite interesting. I think you get a real, so some LSE students did a, a study on when do corporates do good stuff on human rights? And they found mm. that the corporates that do really good things on human rights are the ones which are privately owned. They're not even accountable in terms of being listed on stock markets mm. um, and they can do some really brilliant things because they're completely unaccountable but mm. they can also do some really bad things because they're completely unaccountable mm. so uh, it's, it's weird yeah. yes the dem democracy gets in the way um but for the right reasons uh and another case study uh and we'll, and we'll end with this as a as a topic um symbo for change which is a wonderful project in in mm. solomon so it was about mm. women's empowerment getting women um you know, supporting local women to be entrepreneurs in the honey business in the end. But the whole, pro again, it was a process, not a project um, and, and not even a program. It, it's still going. And one of the learnings for the sector um, and that the INGOs involved was that you, even if you're doing a project on women's empowerment, you still have to work through the tribal processes and the tribal leaders mm. in that village who got on behind it, got in, got in behind it and really supported it. Without that, if you were just trying to support the woman in that community, it wouldn't have worked. So I guess it's a case of, do, if, you know, ha, how much are we framing the way we're doing development in country and how much are we open um, to really letting others frame it through a Christian lens, through a, mm -hmm. a you know, tribal lens? Um, you know, how do we, how do we get better at that? Mm. Jen? I might go first. <laughs> and yeah, you could go first on that one. Well, I mean... I mean, Josie, I think this comes back to that conversation about thinking and working politically. But again, it comes back to, you know, a, a particular, it, it, it can come down to particular individuals in the right place who are, who are often willing to listen to and are in that decision-making role that, that will give you that time. You know, if it it's, might simply be someone who's willing to give it a go. Um, giving you the opportunity and being patient enough to say, well, fine, we'll let you do it and you will use your ways and your systems. And if you, if, you know, you need to frame it in a language that is understandable to the donor, then yep, we're doing TWP, thinking and working politically, doing development differently, whatever you want to call it. But recognizing that, okay, we're accepting that we're going to money into this initiative but we're also accepting that it's going to take time and we're going to wait and trust that these people actually know what they're doing and they're going to lead that process to to eventually get to that outcome that we both want um, that's not an easy feat at all um, and, and it's one thing to be able to um, agree to give it a go to a, a small program like for instance balance of power um, it's another thing to then say okay we'll do that with you know, the, the Vanuatu Health Program, for instance, which is currently responsible for rolling out the COVID vaccine initiative in Vanuatu. Now, two totally different things, but the onus is back on those people that have been given that goal. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious of this every day, as is the rest of the team that I work in, is that we are being used to demonstrate 
how it can look, how locally led development can look. Um, and it's a huge responsibility because at the, the, the whole time we're still trying to you know, balance or manage between um, making sure we are conforming to all of the conventional aid um, requirements and things like that, but at the same time operating in a way that's you know, locally led and um, English is failing me right now, culturally appropriate, you know, contextually appropriate, politically savvy, you know, um, and then reporting back and demonstrating that, yes, we are doing those things that we said we were doing. We didn't do it the way that, you know, other conventional programs might have done it. We did it this way. It took a little bit longer, but it's worth it because it's, it's longer last, or I guess it's more deeply entrenched, so therefore a lot more sustainable and therefore will last a lot longer. Um, yeah, so, so, I mean, what we're really talking about is politics matters, not, not just the politics in country and understanding the politics uh, of where you're working, but our, our domestic politics for the donor country too, right? So that's, that's sometimes, Duncan, I think that can be the problem with the framing that if you have a, a particular issue that in, in the donor country is, is the priority might be, um, you know, focusing on, on climate change to the, to, to the you know, and, and almost everything else becomes a lower priority. What do you do if, if you've got people in countries saying, actually, the priority right now is um, incomes? Doesn't mean climate change isn't the existential threat that it is, but, you know, we're framing it politically from what, what is being driven by by political levers in country and donor countries, and and that is 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 influencing what we're prioritising in our aid. So I think politics matters, but if we want people to think about politics, we probably have to use a different word. Because yeah. as soon as you say politics, people think political parties, political leaders, formal politics. So that's yeah. why I always talk about power first and then politics. So you know, I'm involved in a, a, a research program at the LSE called. Uh, uh, on something we call public authority, which is trying to understand who has power which is accepted as legitimate by civilian populations in places like the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and what you find there, that there's a kind of triumvirate in the minds of the aid sector, which is, you know, if we understand formal politics, CSOs and the private sector, we basically got this country nailed. Right? And we can run our aid program through those three players and, and it's all fine. In parts of the Congo, none of those three really have much power. The only truly national institution is the Catholic Church. The rest is all about armed groups who are outside um, government, are actually opposed to the government, uh, secret societies, self-help groups. And a lot of those just aren't on the radar screen of the aid agencies or the NGOs, to be honest, because they have this artificial world with these three you know, um, actors. So I think it's really important that we start thinking about the missing things, the social norms that I think Jam was talking about earlier, how do they shift? Who, who replicates or changes those? It's probably yeah. not going to be CSOs, to be honest, in many countries. It's, it's, it's faith organizations and families. So how do we engage with those? You know? So I think that if you start with power, you end up in a different place and you may end up with very different partners and very different approaches than if you start with those three politics, civil society, private sector sort of preferred partners, if you like. Yeah, the language becomes a proxy for thinking differently, doesn't it? Jen, the last word. Um, Has COVID changed <laughs> things? Look, I think this is an opportunity. It's a time to 
I guess in the Pacific, it's a time for us to demonstrate. Um, we're always talking about the Pacific being a resilient people um, that we've weathered many, you know, storms in our time. Um, but I think you know, COVID isn't is not indifferent from any of those storms that we've weathered before. It's a lot more um, long lasting, and and but again, um, not any more uh, uh, life threatening than other things that we've we've been managed we've managed to overcome uh, in the Pacific. And I think every time um, there's an opportunity to change and to um, make our lives better, I think this is not any different from any time in, the, in history. What matters most is that, you know, whatever comes out of this, the other side um, is something that is lasting but beneficial to, to all of us, to all people, particularly here in the Pacific. I think um, this is our, our chance to demonstrate our, um, our ability to be that um, and not just talk about it, but set something that'll last. Thanks. Thanks, Josie. Thanks, Dan. What a great place to end. And, you know, our mission is not to feel good, but do good. And this is an opportunity. Thank you both so much. It's been a hugely valuable discussion and one that will keep going, I know. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Useful Outsiders. Please subscribe, share, rate and review and help us to spread the word. We'd love to hear from you, so if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes, please get in touch. You can find our email in the episode notes. We hope you'll join us for the next episode.